The title that I have given for our study this evening, which is Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. The title that I have given it is Titus and the Elder's Duty in regard to false teachers. And you'll see that that title, when we read the text, is just a pretty accurate summary of what it's all about. We were thinking last time about the role of elders um, and who qualifies for that role. Um, But we're going to be thinking more tonight about the work of elders. So Titus chapter 1 and verse, well, verse 10 to 16 is the section, but I'm going to read verse 9 by way of context. This is this prospective elder in verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and who do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Amen. I'm going to read you something that John Calvin wrote probably half a millennium ago. A pastor or an elder needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. And he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able both to rule those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. Now, I hope you noticed, and it's why I read verse 9 to begin, that our passage tonight starts with the little word for. Uh, And for is used here as a conjunction. It's a connecting word between what Paul has just said and what he's going to go on to say. It refers us back to verse 9. And in verse 9, Paul spells out 
this dual responsibility that elders have. Namely, they are to encourage, to edify the faithful on the one hand, and they are to refute, to repudiate those who oppose sound doctrine on the other hand. So tonight we're going to be thinking about the challenging task that elders face in protecting the flock from the damaging influence of false teachers. And this passage, you know, it's not the it's not going to, you know, be the devotional thought for the day, sure it's not. But this passage and the others like it in the New Testament, of which there are quite a few, is there for a reason. And we need to hear what it has to say, and then we've got to respond seriously to it. So, how am I going to approach the passage for us tonight? I'm going to note six things about the false teachers who were active in the Christian community at Crete. Titus and these newly appointed elders would have to confront these individuals and to counter their influence upon the Cretan believers. So really this passage is giving us a biblical case study and a worked example of the elder's duty to protect the flock. So when we have heard what Paul has to say on this issue, we will finish with a word of application and indeed a word of challenge for ourselves. So that's how I'm going to go about it. Tell you six things about the false teachers. First thing I want you to notice is their number. And don't miss the little phrase in verse 10, for there are many rebellious people. And how often we find this in the New Testament and in the church today, that wherever there is a true work of God in lives, people appear on the scene ready to undo that work. And to derail the spiritual progress that has been made in those lives. That's just the way it is. The battle for truth is fought out in every age, in every place, in every Christian community, and indeed in every life. And Satan, the great deceiver... The twister of truth has many troops that he can mobilize, wittingly or unwittingly. No church and no Christian is immune from his attacks. And we could go further and as note that as Paul pointed out to the elders at the church of Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, these attacks on the truth 
will come from within the truth, within the church, and even from within the eldership itself. He says that in black and white in Acts 20. So, first thing to note, their number. There were many of them. Secondly, their identity. There can be no doubt that the troublesome false teachers who were operating within the Christian community at Crete were professing Jewish Christians, Christians from a Jewish background. I mean, it's right there on the surface. In actual fact, um, you know, the pastoral epistles, as they're called, First and Second Timothy and Titus, they're actually addressing a similar situation. Timothy is on at the city of Ephesus, but if you read the opponents that he was having to deal with, it's exactly the same thing. These guys are from a Jewish background. And of course, we know from the book of Acts and Paul's other letters, everywhere he went, he found himself in a sort of theological firefight with these Jewish opponents. And the evidence for this, in case this sounds in some sense anti-Semitic, the evidence is, is clear to make the identification. There is the explicit reference in verse 10 to those of the circumcision group. In verse 14, we read about their, their fascination with Jewish myths. How much more direct can we get? Later in the letter, in chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, Paul returns to the influence of the false teachers. And he tells us there that they are obsessed with foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Paul also mentions, quote, merely human commands that they're pushing in chapter 1, verse 14. And that is reminiscent of how Jesus characterized the teaching of the Pharisees with their additions to the law of Moses. They were merely human commandments. Now, we'll see the significance of this Jewish background when we analyze precisely where the false teachers deviated from the truth in the false spirituality that they were offering to the believers at Crete. We'll come back to that. So their number, their identity. Thirdly, their influence. The false teachers had gained a foothold in the Christian community at Crete. We read in verse 11 that they were disrupting whole households. Now, that was serious for a number of reasons, folks. First of all, it clearly means that some family groupings had been seduced. But tragic as that was, it actually meant that entire house churches 
were placed at risk. You've got to remember that at this stage in the history of the church, there were no such things as church buildings. That doesn't come until late in the third century, by the way. So just think for a moment how destructive to Christian unity and witness on the island of Crete if particular households and house churches became bases of support, sponsors in effect, of the false teachers. You see, if whole households are seduced, that would have the effect, basically, of financially underwriting the corrosive influence of the false teachers. And I know we're going to do a bit of application at the end, but I can't help but think of our modern situation, the modern parallels with the internet and the YouTube where false teaching is only ever a click away. How many believers have allowed themselves to be drawn away from the quality control of the local church to false teachers and their ministries, which then suck in valuable resources that could have been used for God's true purposes. That is a massive issue in the church of Jesus Christ today. It's when we appreciate the immense damage that false teachers inflict upon the Christian community that we'll be able to appreciate Paul's uncompromising instructions to Titus and the elders which will come to shortly. Fourth thing, their character. Always key, character. The false teachers were, verse 10, they were rebellious. That is, they were insubordinate. They refused to acknowledge any authority above themselves. And they certainly refused to submit their own speculations to sound doctrine and to the trustworthy message, verse 9. And they did so, verse 11, for the sake of dishonest gain. The false teachers were on the make. As has famously been said, they weren't interested in the sheep, but in the sheep's wool. Their thinking, through their rejection of the truth, had rendered them corrupt, verse 15. When we come to the latter passage, chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, when Paul returns to the false teachers, he will label them as warped and sinful. Their spiritual talk about knowing God was entirely bogus, evidenced by how they lived their lives. Verse 16, they claim to know God, but 
by their actions, they denied him. And they had absolutely nothing to offer the true people of God. I mean, verse 16 of chapter 1 is quite shocking. They were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Which you'll remember is the true objective and the intended outcome of proper Christian teaching. As Paul stresses throughout the letter, eight times were to do what's good. These guys and their message and their influence left the Christians unable to do anything good. Fifthly, their errors. So as we've noted already, the false teaching that was circulating among the Christian community at Crete, it had a distinctly Jewish flavor. We read of Jewish myths, rules and regulations about purity matters. That's what lies behind the sort of strange comment in verse 15 there. Uh, where Paul says, to the pure, that is believers, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. That's the purity laws. These guys were clearly pushing the Jewish thing. Oh, you can eat that, but you can't eat that. That's clean, that's unclean. Absolutely all passed away, of course, with the work of Christ. And then in chapter 3 again, he refers to controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Oh, they would love to get you down the rabbit hole of what the law means here, what this. You remember the Pharisees, the nonsense they talked? But in, in addition to itemizing the specifically Jewish elements in the false teaching, Paul also gives us a general description of what was wrong with the teaching that they had to offer the believers. Verse 10, it was meaningless and deceptive. It was human in origin. That is, it was made up by man. It's man-made, verse 14. It was foolish and unprofitable and useless. Chapter 3, verse 9. And it did absolutely nothing to address the fundamental problem that the Cretan people had and for which it had acquired a cultural reputation. What was that? Chapter 1, verse 12. They were habitual liars evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And you know something? All the theological speculation in the world and all the abstinence programs you can think of and all the religious rituals that you can follow won't actually change a sinner's nature. It's just rearranging the chairs on the deck chairs on the Titanic, you know. Only the gospel brings real change. 
And as I say that, just think for a moment of all the nonsense, and I mean that, nonsense, that is on offer today that seduces and sidetracks believers, effectively taking them out of the race. Think of all the conspiracy theories, the rabbit holes that Christians disappear down, losing their grip on what really matters. And that can, that can, those can be Christian conspiracy theories. Think of the many end time speculation merchants so quick to declare the latest current event as the fulfillment of Scripture. Think of the many prophecies spoken in the name of the Lord, declaring what he's going to do, which then never materialize. How much of so-called Christian ministry, particularly that disseminated through the internet and outside of the controls of the local church, how much of it meets Paul's description as meaningless Deceptive, foolish, unprofitable, and useless. It's simply a diversion from sound doctrine. It contributes nothing to the development of godliness in a life. It results in no actual good coming from those who get overtaken by these devilish distractions. The conversations I have listened to over the years about things like genealogies and speculation on angels and all, absolute nonsense. And the people who get caught up in it, they contribute nothing but damage to Christian testimony. I do wonder at times, does the, does the devil laugh at the ease with which he takes some Christians out of the race. Sixth, their rejection. In light of all that's been said, it won't surprise us to hear that Paul calls for a robust response from Titus and the would-be elders to the threat presented by the false teachers. How are they to be responded to? Verse 10, they are to be refuted. Verse 11, they must be silenced. Those who have succumbed to their influence are to be rebuked sharply so that they can be rescued from the false teachers hold over them. Verse 13. And when Paul returns to the subject in chapter 3, verse 10, he rules that a divisive person, someone who's sowing discord through these speculations and false teachings, they are warned twice, after which they are to be rejected by the Christian community. False teaching is deadly, 
And thus it is to be dealt with in a deadly serious manner. And this is a crucial aspect of any elder's role and responsibility within the local church. Where false teaching arises, it must be identified and refuted. And the individual or individuals promoting it must be challenged and made subject to church discipline. The church that does not have this firewall in place will inevitably succumb to the virus of false teaching. So, what can we take away with us from this passage, this heavy passage in Paul's letter to Titus? Well, I'm going to stress three things. Number one, this passage helps us to recognize the threat that false teaching presents. I think this point has been made already, but actually it bears repetition. You know, Satan, Satan has several weapons at his disposal that he can deploy against believers and against churches. I appreciate it what Lindsay started the meeting with tonight. You see, persecution is an obvious one. Perhaps it's the most obvious one. There's absolutely nothing subtle about it. It's a full frontal attack that makes faithfulness to the truth costly. It's not easy to withstand. But it's unbelievably easy to identify. That may well not be the case with false teaching. Especially if you are young or untaught in the faith. I'm sure, particularly maybe some of the folks who come to the fellowship in more recent days, you know, they, they think, gosh, there's a push to get to the meetings. There's a push, you know, from the front to attend. I can tell you, to the day I stop doing what I'm doing, I will keep doing that. And as I look out here tonight, I'm going, they're not there, they're not there, they're not there. No one automatically or independently gains a mature understanding of the faith. We all need to be taught. We all need the protection of godly elders whose job it is to protect the flock. And you know something? It is just arrogance, pure arrogance, to think that we'll be able by ourselves to sift through the lies that is out there in the world and inside in the church. No one independently arrives there. It's something that we learn, we develop in as we're taught. 
So don't underestimate the battle for truth that is being fought and the remarkably high casualty rate among unprotected believers. It's a dangerous game to play fast and loose with opportunities for being taught the word of God. I think that's entirely in the grain of what Paul is saying. It's not just having a go. Number two, this passage helps us to uncover, to expose false teaching. I wonder, is there going to be one week in these studies in Titus that I don't quote from John Stott? Um, He is remarkably helpful in how he expresses truth. So here's a quotation from John Stott. This passage provides us with three valid tests to apply to any and every system of teaching. We have to ask three questions about it. First, is its origin divine or human? Is it revelation or tradition? Secondly, is its essence inward or outward, spiritual or ritual? Thirdly, is its result a transformed life or a merely formal creed? True religion is divine in origin, spiritual in its essence, and moral in its effects. I can't improve on that. He says elsewhere, by the way, that the false teachers at Crete had ritual without reality, form without power, claims without character, faith without works. That's the test we must apply to all teaching. Thirdly and finally, this passage shows us how to defend ourselves against false teaching. And the answer is actually very simple. Simple in the sense of being easily understood. Here's what we do. We grow in our understanding of the truth. The faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. We need to get to grips with and be gripped by sound doctrine. We need to be taught. We need to be good students of the word. We need to belong to a church with elders who teach sound doctrine, who are committed to scripture, and who are prepared to do the difficult work of guarding the flock and, where necessary, confronting those teachings and individuals who would lead God's people astray. And this final point about our relationship 
to God's revealed truth in his word brings me to a challenge that I want to leave with you tonight. I want to ask you, not only are you investing in studying God's word, but are you being invested in? Are you prioritizing being taught the word of God? We all make choices. We need to discipline ourselves when it comes to the corporate teaching of God's word. What is it that is more important? We all have responsibilities. We must honor our responsibilities, but we all have this big section of our lives that is discretionary where we make choices. Tell me what is more important than getting to grips and being gripped by the word of God. Are you prioritizing being taught the word of God? And here's a very practical question, and it brings me back to what we studied the last time. From where do you think the elders of tomorrow will come from? You see, the only answer to that, the only answer is that it will come, they will come from among those who have made it their life's priority to understand the word of God. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.